How's it going, everyone? This is Glenn Gare from the State University of New York at New Paltz, and I've got another Neeps cast here for you. Um, today, we are fortunate to be talking with Greg Murray, who is Chair of Political Science at the University of Augusta down in Georgia. Um, and he uh, also is the Executive Director of the Association for Politics and Life Sciences. Um, and he's also a board member uh, as a member at large for NEEPS. And he's been connected with our organization for a while. <clears throat> um, he uh, plays an active role in helping shape a lot of our larger ideas and initiatives as a board member. And we really appreciate the fact that he, uh, that he takes evolutionary psychological ideas and applies them <clears throat> to important issues such as politics in the modern world. So, uh, Greg, thanks so much for being on the show. Hey, Glenn, thank you so much for inviting me. I really appreciate it. I'm excited about this opportunity to talk with you more. I do want to make one, one correction real quickly. Okay. I am no longer the chair of the political science department because there is no longer a political science department at wow. university. So I was merged into a larger uh, department of social sciences. So I am a straightforward professor of political science now. Oh, there you go. Well, that sounds a lot easier then. It is a lot easier. I assure you. <laughs> uh, well, good for you. Very good. Well, well, thank you for that. Um, okay, so my first question pertains to evolutionary psychology. I've kind of been asking our guests um, off the bat to give a sense of your take on evolutionary psychology. And I think in your case, I'm also going to ask you if you can to uh, think about or talk a little bit about the integration of evolutionary psychology with the academic discipline of political science. All right, well, I'm glad to try to address that as much as I can. I think one thing about evolutionary psychology is that it gives, it gives us some additional leverage on some of the variation that we see in the way people behave. In political science, there are a lot of issues that we don't have a full explanation of or anywhere near an explanation of. And I think a lot of some of that some of that can be accounted for if we start accounting for things uh, like evolution and how evolutionary forces may shape our behavior in, in uh, political behavior and all kinds of things from our voting behavior to how we interact with other people in groups to our leader preferences, which is some of the research that I've done, and some other some other things like that. I think it 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 gives us a great opportunity to explain. Uh, politics, political behavior, uh, beyond what our conventional explanations seem to be. Yeah, definitely. I, I mean, I think um, a lot of people who connect with evolutionary psychology will say something similar in terms of the, uh, the fact that it's kind of like this framework and ideas and findings and phenomena, things that we study kind of fit in with that framework in a way that, um, that, without the framework of, of the evolutionary perspective, sometimes it's really hard to make sense of findings. It's kind of like, here's a cool finding, but you don't really have a place to put it or a way to think about it in a, in a bigger picture. And I think it sounds like that's how you're thinking about things such as leader preferences and um, in-group, out-group identification in politics and so forth. Oh yeah, de definitely so. I mean, that's, and you know, in politics, that's what it's about is how resources are distributed. And we know resources are distributed differently 
between groups? Well, you know, maybe evolutionary psychology and evolutionary theory gives us some a little bit more leverage on how to explain some of that. How, you know, some of these biases we tend we tend to exhibit in our in our life, our behaviors. Maybe it gives a little a little uh, leverage on explaining some of those things. So that's the kind that's what excites me about using evolutionary psychology and trying to to apply it to political science. Sure. So, so let's get a little deeper into the weeds then, um, thinking about maybe about a study you've done or about a, a big study in that particular area. What's a, what's a, a particular finding or phenomenon that uh, in, in the field of poli-sci that really has um, been illuminated by the evolutionary approach? Well, a couple of things that people have been working on. Michael Bang Peterson at Aarhus University has been sort of one of the leaders. I could, actually, I'd say he has been the leader in political science in applying evolutionary theory and evolutionary psychology to political behavior. And he's looked a lot at cooperation and why we cooperate, how people decide where they're going to cooperate. He's also got, in terms of specific policy issues, uh, uh, how how um, people decide whether uh, somebody should receive public assistance of some, some mm. sort or not. And um, he's really dug into that quite a bit, done a lot of experimental work with it, and found that it comes down to, you know, this sort of idea that when people are needy, we want our groups to be strong, and that helps explain why, uh, why we would, ex why we would, give resources or not to people who may need help. So that's one thing that I think is, is really important. There's one interesting thing I think that's worth noting about evolutionary psychology and evolutionary theory in political science. And that is that it is a really tough sell. Mm. Uh, people in political science seem to be fairly resistant to it. Uh, I think they, you know, they misinterpret like a lot of people do. They think it's deterministic. Uh, they don't understand that it has to do with sort of the interaction of the biological forces in the environment, how they interact in those sorts of things. And, um, you know, people in political science really don't like that, given some of our history and how genetics and biological characteristics have been used in the past for for political purposes that are really negative and and things that you are things in your um, like psychology today uh, blog that you've written about a little bit and that's affected a lot of political scientists thinking and about evolution and how it's used and just about biological explanations in general so it is a tough sell uh, there are some inroads being made on it. They've, they've, uh, there's been some there have been some inroads made um, in some of the genetic studies. Uh, so that's that's been good progress. Like I said, Michael Bang Peterson's used some evolutionary uh, explanations to to talk about how people behave and distribute resources and stuff. I've gotten a little bit into um, leadership preferences and how it might how evolutionary uh, theory might in, inform how we make, how we decide how people make their, their prep or express their preferences uh, for leaders. And I'm glad to get into more of that if you're interested in some of the details at some point today. Sure. Sure. Yeah. But uh, before we get into, <clears throat> into that, another thing that you said that uh, I find intriguing, especially relevant to another question I've got pertains to what you're talking about as a hard sell or, or a lot of resistance in the broader field of political science. 
um, to the idea of evolutionary applications. And this is nothing new in, in, in the academy. You know, several of us have, have written about and, and studied um, and tried to affect change regarding the fact that um, higher education has something of an evolution problem. Yeah. And this is particularly true the second that you start talking about humans, and it's particularly true once you're talking about human behavior. Um, you know, so the humanities, the so social sciences, um, this is a pretty common kind of issue. But my next question actually pertains to another hurdle that you might be running into, and I'm just kind of guessing, um, which has to do with teaching about evolution in the deep south um so it sounds to me you know where i am in the hudson valley new york this is something of a, of a bubble and the resistance that i tend to see or that you see in a place like this to evolution education um, is usually not coming from a christian or a fundamentalist kind of perspective but i imagine that might be a little bit different where you are yeah, I think that's true. Now, I will. I I should be straightforward about this. I have not tried to teach an evolutionary psychology class. Uh, I have brought evolution into uh, classes on political behavior that I've mm -hmm. taught, but I've never you know spent a great deal of time trying to uh, to, to devote say a whole class to it. Now, I do know that um, Pat Holly at Texas Tech mm -hmm. has been working on ev on evolution and education, and I, I think she's been working hard on it. I'm not clear exactly how much progress she's made on it. I do find uh, I when I have talked about it in classes, you know, like you would expect, some students are fairly resistant. Um, some students seem ambivalent. It's just an, just another topic for them to take notes on. You right. know, some of the, and some of the students can be kind of fired up about it. Uh, you know, we're, we're uh, fighting upstream against some very strong uh, beliefs and, you know, religion, uh, religious beliefs are hard. We learn them when we're very young. Uh, of course, we, there's some evidence that religious beliefs are uh, genetic and, and are related to genetics. I mean, it's, it, it makes sense that those are, those are hard to overcome. Um, I wouldn't hesitate to talk about it in class. Uh, but I understand that, you know, there I could experience some resistance from time to time if I, if I devoted a great deal of sure. time to it. Um, so there's a, there's a recent book you're probably familiar with um, titled Evolution Education in the American South, Culture, Politics, and Resources in and Around Alabama, which is edited by Chris Lynn, Amanda Gaze, uh, Glaze, I'm sorry, um, William Evans, and Laura Reed, which is um, entirely about this particular topic. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah. So I, I just feel like it adds a couple of extra, a couple of extra layers. When wow. I tell people, um, when people use the phrase "America's evolution problem," immediately what comes to mind for most people is sort of resistance from um, an ex an extreme conservative um, movement or an extreme religious Christian kind of. Group. And it's what's interesting when you're in the academy, you, the main resistance you tend to see is actually um, very different. Well, is, it's, I mean, it's interesting, right? Because all the other, we, we agree, everybody seems to agree that all the other animals and organic, uh, organic beings in the world are subject to evolution, except for us humans for some reason. Right. 
<laughs> right, so right. I, I'm not sure that people are fully thinking about that, but you know, it does. It does lead to some conclusions regarding how people view other races, how people view other sexes, how people view other groups that some people are uncomfortable with. My contention is that, you know, unless you confront those sorts of, those sorts of issues, we're never going to solve this stuff and we're always going to be at each other's throat about it. Hmm. So I hate to see that, you know, we're not sure. willing to confront these in, in sort of an educated, thoughtful way sometimes. Yep. Well, you got to understand a problem in, in order to solve it. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so, so related to, uh, to specific findings, um, you've done re uh, research on leadership preferences from an evolutionary perspective. Um, what have you found and what are some of the implications? Well, it's really interesting. There's a little bit of a story behind this. When I first got to Texas Tech, gosh, whenever it was, it was my school before I, I, mm. I came here to Augusta University. When I first got to Texas Tech, I ran into a student who uh, he was a grad student and he was 6'7". And we were at a social event and just started talking and it comes up and I don't even quite frankly remember which one of us brought it up, but it's the presidential height index. And it's this sort of finding that, you know, the tallest candidate tends to win and that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. And um, so, yeah, we started talking about it and said, what the heck, you know, we go probably do a little work on this and see what, what happens. That involved into a couple of, a couple of papers. And basically what we found was, is that, Indeed, we as followers tend to prefer leaders with greater physical stature or physical formidability. And the argument we made uh, that I think seems to work and it's kind of played out over some other research that I've done is that when we're thinking about uh, leaders, what, what comes to mind or what it's, this conjures up, at least through our, our, um, our, our mind and our, the wiring of our brain is that uh, times of the, you know, very violent environment, environment in which our ancestors um, evolved and it, people had these resources they needed to survive and to reproduce. They um, found that, you know, if they had a, an ally who would help them protect and acquire these resources, they were better off and more likely to survive and reproduce. And oh, by the way, if they found a big bad, you know, ally, to help them protect and acquire resources, they were better off. So our argument was overall, this is sort of an issue of that we have this sort of programming that suggests that you know bigger bigger leaders are going to uh, to help us acquire and protect resources. Um, now, of course, it's kind of silly. You know, our leaders today aren't going out. <laughs> you know, leading the charge against the, the invading hordes and, and all that sort of stuff, sure. beating people up. But, you know, we know that some of those remnants of, of uh, evolutionary forces on us continue, continue along with us. So anyhow, so that's the basic finding in that it's the, I mean, it, quite frankly, it's the only explanation that I could reasonably come up with or as we kind of investigated and thought through a bunch of different uh, perspectives on this, it really made sense in, in terms of explaining this. And I've got to tell you, Glenn, when we first started looking at this, I was very skeptical mm. about this. Um, I'm not partisan really in this argument at all, and I still kind of shake my head every time I see it. But every place I turn in my data, I run into this um, 
into this finding. So whether my explanation is correct or not, I don't know. It seems to fit with evolutionary mm -hmm. theory, and um, I don't have anything to refute it at this at this point. Um, so anyhow, we that was what kind of got us started on this. The other interesting thing is that we, as political scientists, are interested in is um, who decides to emerge as leaders. So in other words, in you know, in a democracy uh, such as ours. A lot of people, anybody can run for office, basically, as long as you meet some very minimum requirements that usually have to do with residency and age. Well, how, you know, how do people decide to put themselves forward mm -hmm. to run for office? And I, because I think it's a pretty, personally, from watching it, it's a pretty brutal um, yeah. experience. Absolutely. You know, and I don't know, quite frankly, why people would put themselves forward to do it. Well, to, forward to, to run for office. And one of the things we found in our, I guess one of our, I guess it was probably one of our first studies was that um, males who were, had greater physical uh, stature, and when I say this, by the way, I'm talking about height particularly in this mm -hmm. first study, they were more likely to think of themselves as qualified mm. the leader and therefore were more likely to put themselves forward. Interesting. To run for a leadership. Yeah, I mean... So this is at least one explanation in terms of, of um, why, people, why people emerge as candidates. Uh, so anyhow, so it all kinds of ties in together. And the idea was that, you know, those, those, those children growing up, um, you know, had always been big probably for the most part, had always had mm -hmm. people kind of looking at them as a large ally based on our theory. And people had always turned to them, so they just kind of became accustomed to uh, – you know, to being treated that way and thought of possibly as a leader. So anyhow, so that was another really interesting finding that absolutely that we got out of that. But we've done some some other things with uh, with some experimental work in terms of so if that's true, it's about you know threat from the external environment. Well, that means you should be able to manipulate this experimentally. And indeed, we found that um, you know under conditions of threat say war, people are more likely to prefer a leader with greater physical mm. ability um, in terms of height, weight, and BM, uh, uh, BMI, mm. uh, you know, and then they are when they're in a time of peace, say, or some, some situation requiring cooperation. So anyhow, so there's some other experimental results that are related to that too. So I just think it's a really interesting it's a really interesting um, finding, and what it, one of the things that, that's important to me about it is it, it suggests that biology does play a role in some of our political behaviors, and sure. I think that's important for us as political scientists to, to think about. So, so I think based on uh, your, your research on leader preferences, and especially as it relates to sort of a preference for relatively tall males, particularly under what are perceived as relatively unstable or high threat <clears throat> conditions. I'm sure you've thought about this before. How might that relate to the current state of the United States of America? Oh, gosh. <laughs> I had um, to. <laughs> no. You know what? I, that My same co-author that wrote that very first paper with me has been pestering me to... Uh, to do a little bit with our, with our current leaders and such. <laughs> um, you know, I think a lot of what's going on now is I think we've gone very, very, uh, become much more polarized and, and in, you know, 
and just to use terms of vernacular, people have been talking about us being more tribal. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've been around politics now. I used to work in politics professionally. And I got to tell you, it does seem a lot, a lot tougher environment in that regard now than, than I'm, I was at least used to. Now everybody says that politics, you know, are worse now than they've ever been. And people, when going back in history, remind folks that it's been pretty tough for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, I just, I think what's currently being played upon now are, you know, these, uh, these identities that allow people to treat others as members of in-groups and out-groups. And I think we're sensitive to that sort of thing. And when you have politicians who are willing to push those buttons, quite, and it's on both sides, you know, I don't want to discriminate against one side or the other. Uh, when you have politicians who are willing to push those buttons, then you end up in an environment that's pretty unpleasant. And uh, unfortunately, some research that's showing you know, it used to be our political opponents were people we just sort of disagreed with. And, you know, it was okay. They were still decent people. But some of the public opinion research now is showing that it's not, it's not, uh, it's not that we just disagree with our political opponents anymore. It's that we actually hate them. Mm-hmm. And that's really unfortunate. I know. You know, and that's, I, I don't know how you, it's in a democracy. We're in a democracy. You're, you know, it's about compromise and negotiation. How do you, how do you compromise and negotiate with people, you know, you hate, you, who you think are dumb or evil or whatever. Right. Uh, it's, it's a tough, it's tough. I don't, you know, it's tough. I don't know what else to say about it. Other than that. Yeah. You know, someone was telling me um, one index of, of how that is playing out. That is a kind of concerning thing that I've recently learned about is um, in Congress, they have freshman congressmen. So, you know, brand new, uh, men and women who are in Congress for the first time, and they have an orientation. And apparently, historically, the orientation program had been for everyone. And now there are separate orientation programs, depending on if you're a Republican or, or a Democrat. You know, and that you yeah. could just feel the adverse effects associated with that kind of, that kind of programming. What a shame. I mean, yeah. that's a shame. And no wonder they have trouble dealing with each other civilly right (laughs) right you know if that if we're separating them that early on well it's really interesting i don't know if you've noticed when they uh when they're talking to each other on the house floor and i guess this talks you know this goes back to history you know they're required to call each other you know mr smith or Mm -hmm. or miss jones or whatever uh and part of that is because the the people who wrote house rules i a long, 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 long time ago, said this is one way we're going to maintain civility. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't, I don't think that maybe they ever envisioned it would get to uh, to this point. But it's really a shame yeah. that they're not, you know, they're not interacting uh, any more than they are. In which yeah. you talked about was a was a great demonstration of that. Yeah. So hopefully, um, you know, wherever people are politically, I, I always tell people. I think we all agree that there's a lot of work to be done on sort of building bridges. So hopefully the work that, that you're doing um, and that we're doing as a broader behavioral science community can help, help toward that goal. Well, yeah. And I think one thing that's important um, about what we do is when we show there's some sort of biological uh, influence on our behavior, I think one of the things or one of the things I hope that people take from that is 
is that, you know, my political opponents don't disagree with me just because they've chosen to disagree with me. That part of it is, um, is driven by the environment that they're in and some other things uh, that it's related to. And they're just not, you know, choosing to be honorary. And I think my gut is maybe that takes some, that might take, if people realize that, take some of the edge and the hostility out of some of our discussion a little bit if people are, you know, not thinking that that others are behaving uh, or being difficult just because they choose to be difficult. Right, right. There's a lot of attributional reasoning that goes on along that, along that path. Absolutely. Um, so... Uh, so one of the connections that, that you and I have has to do with working together in, in intellectual society capacity. Um, so I'm going to ask you about NEEPS, but before that, I'm going to ask you to talk a little bit about the Association for Politics and the Life Sciences, which you obviously play a major role in. Oh, well, thank you so much for asking about that. Sure. Yes, I am the executive director of the Association for Politics and Life Sciences, uh, it has been around since about 1980. It's published a, a peer-reviewed journal um, that is that's published now by Cambridge University Press. We've enjoyed a relationship with them now since uh, what was about 2015. Yeah. Um, the association has about 350 or so members. We have a conference every year. Actually, we're getting ready for our conference. Here in April, we're trying. So we've tried something new these last couple of years. We're running it in conjunction with one of the, probably the second biggest political science conference um, in the well, probably in the world actually. And um, so we're going we're trying that to see, you know, if that would make it easier for people to get to us. So uh, it's it's a very interesting organization, as you can imagine. We're going right into the teeth of the problem we were talking about earlier. Mm-hmm. Right? sort of uh, issues right into political science. But we talk about a lot of things. We not only talk about evolutionary theory, we talk about um, public health policy, we talk about ethics, we talk about, you know, bioterrorism and biowar and, um, you know, nonverbal communication and, and uh, presidential debates, that sort of stuff. So it's a great organization. It's free to join if people are interested. And if you're, you know, people want to go check it out, you can check out our website at aplsnet.org and um, come see us. We'd love to have people join us and, and, and uh, contribute to our conversation and stuff. And one of the things we also do is fund biopolitical research. Great. So, uh, you know, come check us out. It that certainly doesn't cost anything. Thank you so much for asking, sure. asking me about that. <laughs> so, so, Greg, so um, just to to advance the, the invitation of folks who might be interested, um, what are the dates and location of the upcoming conference? The conference is going to be April the 6th at the Palmer House in Chicago. And okay. um, it's going to be primarily at, at the afternoon. We used to run it um, around, the, around the country. And, um, you know, we typically have 75, 100 people come and participate. Uh, this move, we tried to align it with the conference, like I said, to make it a little bit easier to get to. It's, it's been a change for people, and people are still getting used to it. Our attendance has been a little bit, a little bit um, lower than that than we've had in the past. But I think it's something that we're kind of we're finally catching on. And hopefully um, we'll continue to, you know, to help spread the word about um, biopolitics 
and such. So um, anyhow, that's that's when it's coming up. We'd love to have people um, participate and come watch if they want to. And if you go, you can go to the website and check it out there. Again, it's APLSnet.org. Or if people want to email me, they can email me at gmurray at augusta.edu. That sounds great. Well, good luck with the conference. I hope and trust that it's a big success there in Chicago this year. Well, thank you. We hope it is too. Great. So, uh, so related, um, the other main connection that you and I have together has to do with NEEPS, the Northeastern Evolutionary Psychology Society. Um, and we're going to have our next conference in Boston, which I think might be the last time that you attended a conference was during the Boston conference. In Boston, it might, yeah, I was thinking about that. I've been at a conference in the past few years and I, at, in Boston, I think it was with Neeps. Sure. Yeah, I think and that I was 2015. I hope you guys are going to accept my paper so I can come this year. <laughs> well, that's, the, that's certainly, certainly the plan in my mind. We hope so too. So. Yeah, I guess the, uh, the papers are being reviewed right now. We got a lot of submissions. There's a lot of excitement um, surrounding the conference. It'll be in Boston, June 2nd, 3rd, and 4th. Uh, yeah, I, up. I heard in your, in your uh, talk with, with Becky Burke, she had, you have, like, I think you said over 90 submissions or something. Yeah, yeah, that's we got great. about 90. Very that's, excited. That's great. Well, I'm yeah. looking forward to it. Excellent. Thank you. So um, maybe it would be helpful if you could sort of speak for a few minutes for our listeners about your take on the NEEPS experience and maybe why people might want to prioritize attending this year. Well, I mean, NEEPS is a wonderful wonderful organization. One thing I like about NEEPS, I think people are very friendly and very approachable and very enthusiastic about the um, topic. Uh, when I was there the last time, the paper topics were great and very compelling, and people paid attention at the panels, which I must admit, I've been to conferences where that didn't always work out. Hmm. Uh, I, there's a great student presence mm-hmm. at um, NEEPS, which I think is really positive, and quite frankly, we at APLS have tried to take up a little bit of, uh, of some of your ideas about how to attract students and nurture them and help them along this really interesting path of looking of using evolutionary psychology in a variety of, of disciplines, whatever their um, discipline is. And, um, you know, you can't really beat a conference that has intellectually stimulating topics with nice people that's reasonably priced mm-hmm. and it's in a very nice, you know, town to go to. So, um, yeah, I hope people will come. I hope they'll be tons of people there, uh, whether you're presenting a paper or not, um, you know, come and listen to the interesting discussions that are had and the interesting ideas that are, that are thrown out there and learn a lot, just like I'm planning on learning when I come. Yep. And I always learn a ton when I'm there myself. Um, it's fascinating, isn't it? Some of the stuff people think about and talk about and do as it's, it's great. Absolutely. And, uh, one of the, uh, things that, uh, we've had connected with Neeps for a while now um, are two affiliated societies that have their meetings uh, juxtaposed um, in time or sort of connected in time with the NEEPS conference. And w- one is the Feminist Evolutionary Perspective Society um, and the other being the Applied Evolutionary Psychology Society, which I feel like connects um, directly with, with your work. So um, did you attend that last time? You know what? I did attend it last time, and it and 
uh, I was trying to think. I don't remember anything in particular. I, in my mind, I can't separate it from what I experienced in the reg, in the mm-hmm. rest of the conference. But I do remember we had a we had a set aside meeting, um, or at least gathering, where we got together and talked and had talked and had some um, very enthusiastic people talking about some some really important topics. And this is you know understanding. You know, you, well, I won't speak for you. I'll speak for me. I spent a lot of time in the theoretical world. And as we all know, the theoretical world doesn't always apply to the real world. Well, the applied, fo- the, the applied folks uh, are trying to take evolutionary theory and evolutionary psychology and apply it to the real world. So it has real world uh, implications and consequences that people can understand. And I think that's really important as an academic. I realize one of the things that's, or at least I think one of the things that's important uh, is for me to take this, this research that I do and have the people who pay for it in most cases, which is the taxpaying public, uh, you know, explain to them what I'm doing and why it's important and, mm-hmm. and um, how it applies to them. And I think that's what the, the applied evolution yep. evolution group works on. Yeah, that's that's exactly it. Um, and we are going to have uh, um, the next meeting for the we call it apes um, yeah. applied evolutionary psych society. The next meeting will actually be partly funded with a grant from the human behavior evolution society. Um, yeah. and there's going to be a keynote uh, talk for the apes group in particular by Dr. Stefan uh, Hoffman of Boston University, who's a renowned clinical psychologist who studies anxiety disorders from an evolutionary perspective. Um, and uh, there's actually going to be funding to help support student attendance and, uh, and practitioner attendance at that particular um, meeting. So hopefully we'll be able to see you there this year as well. Oh, gosh, that sounds really important. Um, yeah, I hope, I, I hope so, too. And I mean, we know how many people in society are suffering from anxiety. And I mean, I had a little anxiety before talking to you today, so I. Oh, sorry I, about that. Not, no, no, not to not to diminish not to diminish people who have real, real serious problems with this. But I mean, yeah, and this is kind of goes back to what we initially started talking about. Evolutionary theory and psychology has been ignored in a lot of a lot of explanations of things, and I'm hoping people are are waking up to the fact that you know this. These sorts of long-term forces on us matter, and they can matter in big ways. And uh, you know, I think we need to at least think about them and study them to see if there's things we can we can use it for to to help advance us and solve some of these problems we've had forever and seem to have difficulty resolving. Yep, I I, I very much agree. You know, I, I feel like when people actually talk to folks that are using. Um, the evolutionary approach to understand behavior, the lion's share of us um, will quickly say the same kinds of things you're saying, which are how can we use these ideas to help make things better for the world around us and for the people in our lives. So um, I appreciate very much your, your angle on that and all the work that you've done toward that, Greg. And with, with that said, I've got my final question, which we're asking all of our guests here on the Neepscast, which is, let's hear your evolutionary psychology related haiku. <laughs> well, so, well, first of all, Glenn, thank you. Thank you again for inviting me. Thank you for having me. Thank you for all the good work you've done. No, thank you. Evolutionary psychology and NEEPS and what's going on in society with our understanding of science in general. Now, going back to 
the idea of the anxiety. It was this haiku that was worrying me. <laughs> so I will frame it in this. It goes back to that idea that um, maybe political science hasn't been as welcoming to evolutionary psychology as I'd hope it be. It would be. So let me let me let me use do my haiku here and see how that goes. Oh please, Polly Sai, hear the evidence why ye must know Evo Sai. Nice. That is totally accessible and it matches where you're coming from quite a bit, Greg. Um, I'm going to give that an A+. I want to thank you so much for being part of it. This is Greg Murray from Augusta University, and this has been another episode of the Neepscast. We will see you next time.